Eits Jolkali. What's up? Welcome, we are presenting another episode of CPS Cruel Public Schooling. It is the middle ground between unrest and discipline. Between injustice and corruption. And it lies between the pit of a student's fears. And the summit of their knowledge. This is the dimension of education. It is an area which we call the cruel public schooling. dimension that intends to scrutinize the CPS system through its core from a student's eyes. Hey guys, welcome back. Remember, this is Cruel Public Schooling, a segment where we aim to focus on any corruption, injustice, or anything new that might affect any CPS student, teacher, or parents. In this episode, we're kind of aiming to focus more on the discussion of remote learning as we did like last week and all that and specifically in this episode we kind of aim to focus on on just things that might affect kindergarten and pre-kinder students teachers and parents and I do think this is very important to discuss just because it's kind of like the development stages of a of a kid you know of, of a child and just how having this pandemic going on might alter or affect the students and how just like the classic learning style might be, you know, just molded into something new that potentially might fit the modern era or just, you know, kind of mold it into something that might hopefully doesn't affect like the development stages of a child. And this episode will be a part one and part two. And we do also have two great interviews with a pre-kinder teacher and a kindergarten teacher who give us a little insight about what is happening with their remote learning program. Trying to cater it more so all of the students won't be affected by this and just, you know, still maintain that bond and that learning experience that you, you know, you experience when you're in pre-kinder and kindergarten. So without further ado, we have an interview with kindergarten teacher Jennifer Klonsky, who is a teacher in Little Village. And yeah, let's just get right into it. So I'm Jennifer Klonsky. I'm a kindergarten teacher. I just finished 25 years of teaching in CPS. I am also a CPS alumna, and I am the mother of a CPS alumnus. First question, like, what is your goal as an educator? My goal as an educator is to cultivate an intellectual curiosity, create meaningful experiences for young people to help guide children to pursue what fascinates them and learn more about it and to help provide the tools and opportunities for them to do that. Because I teach young children, I think it's really important to do that in an environment that is that is playful. I, I think it's important to build kids' ability to use language, to um, talk about their experiences. I am a dual language teacher, so to talk about their experiences in two languages and ask questions in two languages and explore their creativity through art and music. There's probably a lot more, but I have a lot of goals. Okay, so we'll go on to the next question. And like, can you describe us like a regular day in your classroom? So in a regular day in my classroom, 
the children come in. We have a fairly relaxed start to the day. Children eat breakfast in the classroom. So kids who are hungry eat. Kids who are not hungry choose another activity like building with blocks or drawing um, or curling up with a storybook. Then after a little bit of time to sort of ease into the day, we form a circle on a big rug and we all sing together and dance together and do some movement activities, maybe play a game. Um, so some of that is about language practice, learning how to you know, name your body parts in Spanish. Some of it is just about being together in community and cooperating. Then we'll go on to some daily like math routines, counting the days of the week looking at, I mean, not the days of the week, the days of the, how many days we've been in school, looking at a pattern on, a, on our, day, our calendar, looking at the seasons changing, things like that, right? Then, been so long since I've been in a classroom, I'm trying to remember what usually happens after that. They might go to library or art class, at my school, we have the fortunate opportunity to work with teaching artists. So um, perhaps a music teacher or a theater teacher will come in and co-teach with me. We have a block of, of math time that's really play-oriented. It's a lot about building and drawing and figuring out shapes and counting, you know, through counting through games, you know, figuring, uh, rolling a dice and matching up the numbers and things like that. I incorporate a lot of self-directed play in my classroom. And so um, as much as I can give kids the opportunity to choose an activity to learn through, um, I will do that. We have a garden at school. So we go spend time every day in the garden. And this is year round. As long as the weather's not dangerous, we go outside, check out the trees and dig for worms and look how the plants are growing and changing. Kindergartners love earthworms and roly polies and things that you find if you turn over a log or a rock. And so it's important to me for them to explore that. And so we'll do projects around things. You know, they'll discover something and we'll build a project around it. Um, last year lent us his vermicomposter box. So we were able to have his little worm farm in our classroom for a few weeks. And so the kids were able to dig out worms and like put them on the tables and watch what they do and build worm labyrinths for them to go through and things like that. So a lot of learning through exploration. That's so um, cute. It, it's, it's, it's cute, but I mean, it's, I mean, there's really heavy intellectual yeah, lifting going on people look at it and go it's cute. it's super cute I mean we raise cute to an art form I also teach ukulele to my students um and if you think ukuleles are cute and you think five-year-olds are cute try 20 tiny humans with missing teeth and tiny stringed instruments and skewed pigtails and light up sneakers cute as can be but also it's a way to it's a vehicle for real exploration in, in depth, right? Worms are important, right? Because worms make it possible for things to grow, right? The connection of living things on the planet gives kids an environmental consciousness, a curiosity about science. Playing a musical instrument gives kids a capacity for creative self-expression, but it also helps them understand how sound works. So it's cute, but it's also deep. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree with that. So like, next question is like, how have you been adapting to remote learning? And how is like going to look like? So it's hard. It's really hard. 
especially because of what I'm talking about, because so much of the way I teach and so much of the way young children learn is about sort of experiences and exploration and getting your hands on stuff and getting dirty and running as fast as you can and evaluating risk. Will I get hurt if I stand on this log? Kind of stuff like that. Making stacks of things, comparing Right? There's all this stuff you can only do by putting your hands on things. It's really hard to engage that way through a screen. I am really glad that CPS made the call to go remote because I just I don't believe it's safe for us to be back in classrooms together. A lot of what makes it so unsafe to be in a classroom in a kindergarten classroom live and in person is the same stuff that makes kindergarten what it is. Singing collectively turns out to be as dangerous as coughing in someone's face. Singing projects your droplets very far. 50% of the day we're singing. Most of what I say I sing, right? Kids sing all the time. We dance together. We hold hands. We hug. If a kid misses their mommy, they might need a hug from their teacher. We learn to read each other's facial expressions, which is really hard to do if I'm masked and wearing PPE and standing six feet away and won't ever have any kind of close contact. We learn how to tie our shoes, which requires us to be close together. We zip our jackets, which requires us to be close together. Take turns, share materials. All the things that make kindergarten such a rich social experience are the same things that makes it very dangerous for us to be in the same space. So I have to really rethink what kindergarten is for. It places a lot of demands on parents also because my students are not independent readers and writers yet. They don't know how to navigate the technology. And I think that the healthiest way to teach remote is to do some live meetings with kids online so that they can see each other's faces and we can do some collective activities so we can build communities so kids can feel like they're together even though they're not. But in terms of engaging learning, I think a lot of it is stuff that has to be done off screen. So I'm trying to develop ways for them to do projects that don't require them to be on a screen and use the screen as a way to share their projects and interact with each other's work and with each other. One of the things I did last spring that I was really proud of, that I think I can do better now that I've got good planning time, is we made a little TV show. And we called it the Kindergarten Show. Students were responsible for deciding what they wanted to perform or present, uh, recite a poem or sing a song or do a dance or show us the flowers in their yard or how they help around the house or whatever. And their grown-ups had to record them speaking or singing, making, you know, doing their thing, send me the videos. And then I would edit the videos all together in iMovie. And I would share it on our classroom's private page so that nobody but the kids and the families could see it. I wish everybody could see it because it was, the kids did some amazing stuff. One Student taught us how to cook an egg. One student taught us how to make a volcano. Uh, there was a lot of dancing, a lot of cool dance moves, some some puppets. It was very it was very cool. And so that was one of the ways I thought of, you know, to get kids off the screen but still use the screen, right? So they weren't just tied to a computer screen. Another thing is I did is I made some videos that I put on YouTube that I called the Miss Jennifer Show. And that was me singing our usual morning songs, um, reading some stories, uh, showing some arts and crafts. I made some puppet sidekicks. I have a I have a puppet sidekick called Calcetina who is made out of a sock. So the first time I showed the kids how to make a sock and then 
a sock puppet. And then Calcetina accompanied me on all the rest of the episodes of the Miss Jennifer show. And I put that on YouTube because I know kids watch YouTube videos on their parents' phones. So even if they had no other internet access, they'd still be able to see my face. And I'm planning to step up my uh, production values on the Miss Jennifer show. I'm going to get a ring light and an exterior, an external mic and, you know, maybe paint a wall green so I can have a green screen, stuff like that. Because it looks like we're going to be doing this for a while, right? That's wonderful. I love that all. But, okay, so going on to that, I was like, do you think kindergarten kids can, like, benefit from this new system? Or, like, what are the downsides of this? Well, so, I mean, yes, I think they can benefit. I think I can teach however I have to teach. But I think what teaching means becomes a different thing. And I think what learning means becomes a different thing. I think we have to get over the idea that children are only learning when they're in a classroom, which that was true before the pandemic. Children are learning all the time. They're, they're hardwired to learn. They're hardwired to learn through play. And if they're having experiences, they're learning through those experiences, right? It's harder to teach in an experiential way through a screen, but it is not impossible. And it's important since it's important to do that right now. Yes, it's possible and important. I think school is valuable even when it takes place on a screen. I think making connections with other students and with adults who are not your parents is important and valuable. But I think what we usually think of as learning as like this thing that can be quantifiably measured on some kind of test is not what this is. I mean, we're learning how to survive a pandemic, number one. And kindergarten kids also need to learn how to survive a pandemic. We're learning that our teachers are going to keep showing up for us however they have to. And that's important, that there are adults you can count on besides your parents who are going to show up for you. In addition to your parents, I mean, not instead of, right? And we're learning that we can still be connected to people even though we're far apart. There are advantages, weirdly, to this kind of learning. I don't think anybody wants this to be the long term, but there are ways that this can free us up to sort of reimagine what learning really means. And this idea, I mean, one of the really problematic things about the hybrid model or about this stuff about putting your desks in straight rows six feet apart is our kids shouldn't be sitting in desks in straight rows looking at us already. Like that's, that's already not how this should happen. And if that's what has to happen, like if kids have to have really restricted movement and really restricted interaction in order to learn, I don't think it's what's best, right? I think we can interact with each other in small groups. Kids can get my individual attention. Kids can see my face via remote learning. So it's imperfect. It's not ideal. What's ideal is there's no pandemic and we get to go back and be together and have that beautiful experience. But it's, it's what we're going to do and we'll make it work until such a time as we don't have to anymore. And for the next question is like, how do you think other teachers feel about remote learning and have you all been like preparing for the new school year? It's a peculiar thing, right? Because I teach very young children, I'm generally kind of anti-screen. I don't use a lot of technology in my classroom. We, you know, we dig for worms. We play ukuleles. I don't use the, we use iPads sometimes, but not very often, mostly because I think in general, screens aren't really that good for kids. I think they should be out having concrete experiences. In these times, screens become a lifeline. So I have colleagues who teach older children who use a lot more technology to teach. 
Um, so older kids make videos and make uh, movies, make up, act out plays and record each other. They do all kinds of things with technology that I don't know how to do, right? And there's all these new apps now to meet the need in remote learning that I've never used before. Like even Google Meets. I'd never been in a Google Meet before this, right? And so my colleagues um, did a lot of training and some of them had already, you know, done their own professional development. And so they were able to share their wisdom with us. And we were like, we were able to share our wisdom with each other, like how to make a, you know, a short video of yourself singing a song or, you know, whatever. So we did a lot of that. And we've been sort of practicing over the summer and sharing our ideas with each other. And one of the things that we're talking to each other a lot about is that same thing. How can we create projects that involve kids using the technology, but not sticking kids staring at a screen for seven hours a day, because I can't stare at a screen for seven hours a day. I don't know about you, but I feel like it's bad for our eyes. It's bad for our bodies, right? It's bad for our brains. So we're looking at new ways to sort of use the technology without being glued to it. And I think we're going to do some more professional development before school starts. And on, in the meantime, we're all trying to learn on our own and plan on our own. <laughs> yeah. So going on to the next question is like, what is the support that CPS has provided to you as a teacher and students? And their families too, to like accomplish having like a good quarter for this year. I know at my school, we have uh, actually before the pandemic, we received a grant for one-to-one technology to up- update our, our tablets and um, make sure there were enough um, tablets and Chromebooks for every kid in the school. And when we got the grant, it was like back in, I don't know, December or January, I said, oh, do I have to have one-to-one iPads in my room? An iPad card is going to take up so much space and we don't really use them that much. And now I'm like, oh, great. Everybody's going to have a tablet that's up to date and will run the apps that we use, right? Because our old iPads wouldn't run Google Meets because they were too old. So that'll, that will help. Um, I know that the city has expanded our students' access to Wi-Fi it sounds like there's plans underway to, you know, extend that and make it accessible to everybody. I know one of the things I thought was really cool that I read in the newspaper is that they installed solar-powered Wi-Fi transmitters in Douglas Park. I think some of my students will be able to access the internet with that because we're pretty close to Douglas Park. I thought that was incredibly cool. I didn't even know there was such a thing as solar-powered Wi-Fi. So, I mean, I think we're, you know, we're doing our best in kind of a horrendous situation. Nobody was really prepared for, I mean, a few days before schools closed down, I didn't, I never imagined they were going to shut down the schools. That just never even occurred to me. So I think it's taken a little time to rally. But I think that there will be greater access when we return to school. Anyway, that's my hope. Just going on to the next question is like, do you believe in redefining public school learning after this pandemic? I do. I believed in redefining public school learning before the pandemic. In early childhood, there's in other parts of the country, um, there are things like forest kindergartens where the kids, the teachers take the kids out into the woods and they just spend all day outside. We don't have woods in Little Village, right? But we have some lovely green spaces. We have Douglas Park, our school garden. There's El Jardincito, which is a wonderful little uh, nature play space. Before the pandemic, I was trying to increase the amount of outdoor education that I did. I think connecting kids with nature. I don't think there's a whole lot I can teach inside a classroom that I can't teach outside. There's a few things. 
if kids have the proper clothing for it, you know, they don't really have to stay indoors from November to April. We can we can make it work. Now, I think especially now that we know that indoor spaces in old buildings with old ventilation systems are part of the challenge we face, I think we should really think about how we think of outdoor education as not just, you know, now they get a little time to play and play is like the icing on top, right? But that exploratory learning should be paramount. That's a lot of what we should be doing. Self-directed, exploratory, outdoor, where the teacher is a, is a guide, a facilitator. I actually already thought that before this, but I think it way more now. I think it's a safer situation for young people to, be, to not be closed in close quarters. And going on to the next question, like what is missing in our system? And like, what are ways we can improve like public education in our city? I mean, equitable funding is number one, right? We don't have the resources we need. We already didn't have the resources we needed to keep schools, to make schools like minimally safe. I think we've done a really good job at the school where I teach of making schools, of making our school a safe place for kids to learn and grow, um, where they feel seen, they feel protected, they feel loved. But what we don't have enough of is funding for basic materials. I'm writing grants to take my kids on field trips. I am writing grants for art supplies. I, we don't have enough. We don't have enough of the things we need to make it a meaningful experience. And so I think that's the main thing is equitable funding. And I think part of that is because of the reliance on property taxes to fund schools. And part of it is about the way funding decisions get made higher than higher than at the local school level. And last but not least, like you have been a CPS teacher for like a long time. And like you're your teacher, you're a parent also from CPS and an alumna. Do you love CPS? Or like, do you not? What are your opinions on it? I love Chicago. And I love Chicago's kids. And I love Chicago public schools. I love the opportunity that our beautiful city presents to create great experiences for young people. I've lived in Chicago most of my life, and I am a Chicago public schools kid, and it never occurred to me to teach anywhere else. I was not a person who thought I was going to go teach in some other district. When I finished school, I came straight into CPS, and I'm proud of that choice, and I don't, I don't intend to leave. There are flaws in a big system. It's difficult to manage a big system. The school system is a reflection of a society that's not totally equitable. And, Chicago, and schools can't really fill in all the gaps that get left open, right? So we do. We provide a lot. Our kids are hungry. We feed them. Our kids need winter coats. Somebody donates winter coats. Our kids all get winter coats. We, we, provide, we fill in a lot of gaps. But there's a lot of gaps. And that's because that's, that's kind of the way it's made, right? I'm proud of the work I do. I'm proud of being a CPS teacher. I, they will roll me out of there someday. I won't leave willingly. <laughs> and I love Chicago kids. I think Chicago kids, I mean, I can't compare them to other kids because I really only know Chicago kids, but Chicago kids are my favorite kids. And like just another more question, like have you ever seen change in CPS and like is there actually hope for our public education system? I believe there is. I have seen change. There's a couple of things that give me reason to be 
optimistic. One is that the school that I work at is a school that was founded by a group of educators and parents who saw a need and an absence in our community for a school that was culturally responsive, that cultivated bilingualism, that was arts oriented. So we have a school with a couple hundred, it's 240 something kids in it where every kid is visible, every kid is known, and where we believe in sort of looking at our practice, re-examining our practice so that we're meeting the needs of the kids who are in front of us, right? So that means we're always growing. As educators, we're always growing. And I, I think that's important to recognize that the people who are doing this work, we're really working hard to do it well. Um, the other thing that gives me reason for hope is that uh, we've won some pretty significant gains, right? We've got a promise to have nurses in every school building, social workers in every school building. It's a big system. Change doesn't always happen fast, but I I think there's people doing the hard work and I think young people are using their voices to make demands. And I think that that's, you know, that's what we're here for, right? We want children to shit young people. I shouldn't say children because some of you are not under 18, right? But we want young people to be able to use their voices to shape the world they want to live in. And I think, you know, things like young people making a radio show and exploring education issues, that's, that's powerful. That's, I'm, I'm so impressed. I'm very hopeful. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed this interview. I found it very interesting. I had like a great discussion with her. A lot of it like triggered like my memories from like pre-kinder and how like in kindergarten just how fun and like interactive it was. So I do kind of have like sympathy for like a lot of these, you know, young children who kind of won't experience that same thing I experienced. But I just see how much this teacher is actually trying to like still maintain that interest to her students and I'm making like a very traditional way where it's just you connecting on like you know on your computer for like an hour or two and just sitting there I do like the fact that it's kind of making it more entertaining for the child and still captivating their interest because I do find that very important because a lot of students I mean specifically if you're like young your like attention span is basically really bad like you just get distracted by everything so just using a lot of these strategies I do find like very smart in a sense yeah and like I'm very appreciative that like uh, that this teacher specifically is like aiming it and catering it more to her interests of the students and still maintaining like that fun thing in a sense also distracting distracting these kids into like you know just okay it's a normal day of school not specifically normal normal but still has that same exact like creativity and like and just later, I will be giving out any resources for in case you may need a laptop or anything of that. So you can contact your school and be ready for school, which is September 8th, you know. And any questions a lot of people might have, and I'll just give out those resources. But right now, I do want to discuss, like, anything new that kind of happened already in CPS. Because this is a CPS show, and I, just, I do want to, like, kind of update on whatever is happening. So with um, right now, as of recently, as of August 11, 2012, CPS introduced a new budget on Monday that would cut um, half of the funding for the school-based officers, that is the uh, school resource officers, you know, the SROs in schools. Uh, CPS had initially had a $33 million contract with Chicago Police Department for, like, the last school year, but, like, in this school year, the district will only pay, like, $7.5 million. 
that is only for 48 officers on mobile school units and will give like 10.5 million in credit for remote learning days and when they're like not assigned to schools that's like according to cps and like also cps ceo janice jackson also said that the cost will kind of be redistributed in a sense of in-school instruction like remote learning will like will continue obviously for the first quarter so i don't like i do kind of agree that there's no sense of having that sro program but like you know it was already extremely overfunded but that's kind of shining light on that and and that was basically i just wanted to point that out and in the next half of the show we will i will be giving out again any resources and we also do have another interview with a kindergarten teacher and how also she's dealing with remote learning and all that and just stay in tune i will be giving out any resources in case you any links or any like you know hotlines or whatever in case you need help um finding a computer or anything so just a little reminder, this is Crew Public Schooling, and I am your host, Melissa, and we'll be taking a short break. CPS. Crew Public Schooling. Welcome back. This is Cruel Public Schooling, a segment where we aim to focus on any corruption, injustice, or just anything new that might affect a CPS student, teacher, or parent. And next up, we do have an interview with Vanessa Saucedo, who is a pre-kinder teacher at Little Village. And we'll just be asking her just how she's dealing with remote learning and how she thinks she thinks she's going to tackle just being a pre-kinder teacher knowing and acknowledging that it's the first time for you know for her students to attend school. So without further ado, let's let's listen to that. Well, my name is Vanessa Saucedo. I'm the bilingual pre-K teacher at Del Pochcali Elementary School in Little Village, and I've been teaching in CPS since 2011. And can you describe your goal as an educator? When I decided to teach early childhood education, in particular pre-K, I always um, knew that my goal would be to support my students and their families in social emotional development and just kind of to create community with the families of my students because pretty much the, the way I see it, the student, the child is in the center and all of us all of us adults and all the like school community were around the, the child. So we're supposed to, we should be working together to really support this child and being the best they can be. Can you describe regular day in your classroom? Um, so I have a full day pre-K class of 20 kids and we start at eight o'clock in the morning and we end at 3 p.m. And so pretty much in the morning we start with, we start with breakfast to toothbrushing, we have our morning meeting. Then they have like their specials where they go out to art, music, or gym. Then we have our day is pretty much, it's not as uh, departmentalized as in other grades because I do centers. So pretty much for the morning before lunch, I have a center, a reading center, a math center, and like a hands-on center, which is like science-based and exploration. And so I do those in the morning. um, And that's when I focus on small group instruction. And then we go to lunch. After lunch, they have a nap. And then in the afternoon, we focus on, we do uh, physical education. So we work on that. We work on physical education, we do music and movement and whatever activity we couldn't wrap up in the morning. Like if I'm going through groups and I'm trying to assess children, I kind of continue that in the afternoon. 
And the children that I'm not working with, they are pretty much involved in free play where they can choose their activity while I'm working with a specific group. And then they go home. (laughs) Uh, Next question. Uh, What do you think is like the biggest learning challenge from this pandemic? And like, is it changing the, the education system? I believe that the biggest challenge, especially for myself, that I work with the youngest children is just kind of not being physically present with each other because I feel like so much of our learning is hands-on, not only in the physical development aspect, but just like helping them like learn to be um, autonomous in the classroom, learning how to kind of button their pants, wash their hands the right way, you know, brush their teeth, and also just really supporting them socially and emotionally when they're having a rough day, you know, like being able to hug them, you know, being able to help with the separation anxiety, you know, just kind of having fun. We're very hands-on, especially in our classroom. So that was the biggest challenge I felt, especially because everything we're going through with the pandemic is hitting everyone so hard socially and emotionally that I feel my students are definitely feeling it. And it's it's like heartbreaking, you know, because I wouldn't know how to teach in person. Like if they were the way they were talking about having us go into the schools physically, I I don't know how I would function as a teacher not being able to give a crying child the hug when they needed it. Or, you know, if someone is doesn't know how to button their pants, you know, well, how do I, what do I do? Because I have to break social distance. And also just... They're learning how to not sneeze and cough on people just naturally because developmentally they don't know how to not do that. So there's a lot of things that they could be potentially putting each other at risk and and myself at risk without even realizing it, right? So I just felt that that was very unfair to put that kind of responsibility on young children. As much as I would love to see them in person and be with them, their safety is the most important thing for me. So I think... I just have been trying to do the best I could with being as socially and emotionally supportive to them at home, to the families. And that's pretty much what I'm going to do once I start this new school year with the new students, just really trying to develop those relationships. Next question is, how do you see your day now in a virtual setting? Like, just because of how you told it, it's so sad. I'm sorry. I know it's kind of, it's like heartbreaking, but it's like we have to learn to live in this new norm, right? So pretty much my day, I use an application called Seesaw, which is, I feel it's a lot more kid-friendly. They can kind of almost like a social, the way Facebook allows people to post pictures and comment on each other and like share stuff. That's how Seesaw is. So each child has their own folder for their documentation on whatever they respond to the activities. And then they share it through the, throughout the feed. And then other kids can see it. They can like like it. They can say like, oh, that's awesome. So I'm pretty much going to continue with that approach that I, I used at the end of last year. And a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be doing right now to start is just using a lot of books to talk about like what school is going to be like you know, when they come back in person and how also more than anything, what they're doing now at home with their parents is still school. You know, their parents are still their first teachers and they need to like understand that and respect that their parents are working really hard with them as well. And it's not going to be easy, but that we're here to support each other. So I'm planning to be available to to parents to help guide them, to teach them how to use the application, to um, help them teach the kids how to be able to kind of maneuver it as well. So the kids can feel a little bit of autonomy in that sense of like, oh, if they want to share a drawing, 
they can go ahead draw it because they can draw on the actual application like on an ipad or on a phone and then upload it they could do voice recordings too so i'm just going to be focusing a lot on like teaching the skills that parents need to just kind of have it go smoothly most of the year anyway at the beginning is always social emotional developing that trust having the kids see us um, myself and my co-teacher because i have a teacher assistant so we're going to be on there. We're going to be sharing stuff about our personal lives. Like I have a dog. So I'm going to tell them like, oh, this is my dog. Introduce my dog. Talk about things that I like. So that way they can really start feeling like they know me, even if they just see me on the camera. So that way when they do see me in person, they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to make these connections. But a lot of storytelling, a lot of reading, a lot of just letting the kids tell me about themselves and then me sharing a lot about myself. And also so that way for whatever new parents I do get that don't know myself or my co-teacher so they can kind of get a feeling of our approach to education and just really more than anything, how we're, we're here to work together. And there's like no wrong way because there's no right way to do this right now. So we're here to help each other. And also going with that, like, what about working parents? How can working parents help out and like basically, you know, just help out with their children's education? So the good thing about this application is that the assignments I, I, I hand out, the parents have access to it 24 hours a day. So if a parent gets off of work like at four o'clock and I'm no longer available online, they can still, you know, complete the activities with their child and upload it. And they can also still, if they have questions, they can message me. And then if it's like a, a an emergency, I have access to those messages directly to my phone. So I'll get the alert. And then I can respond back or I can just say like, okay, I'll, I'll message back the next day. And what we were doing just because our devices weren't very, they weren't equipped for Google Meets as good as the other classrooms. We were doing Google Meets once a week. And so that way we gave um, families time to that if they wanted their child to participate, to try to figure out who can help them, you know, log on and be there with them. And if for whatever reason, they could never log on to the Google Meets because of the work schedule, you know, we can develop something after hours. So it kind of would be like after hour appointments. So my co-teacher and I were pretty much on the same page in regards to that. You know, we definitely want the parents to be able to come out to us, to reach to us, but also we want them to to kind of maintain a schedule for themselves so that they don't feel like they have to be online all day, every day. The same as us, you know, because everybody has other things to do. But it's like a, a case by case scenario. That's when I talk with parents and I'm just like, let me know if you're working. Do you need how can I support you and how can we make this work for all of us? What do you think is the biggest learning challenge for this pandemic? And like, how do you think it's changing the education system more on like pre-K level? I think the biggest challenge is just the lack of the resources our students need to really be able to to feel a part of, of everything that's happening, right? Like I was saying, the devices we had, the iPads we had are really old. So a lot of them couldn't even get on Google Meets. So we would have to like set up through the parent's phone or something. But I definitely feel the resources because I also had a couple of parents that were put on the waiting list to get internet because so many people were trying to get internet at the same time. So I think they're just things that if we could, we would have addressed it as a city before, we wouldn't be struggling. Like if we had citywide free Wi-Fi, that wouldn't be an issue because parents, even if they couldn't get on, a, on an iPad or a laptop, they can access the learning app that I use on their phone. 
So they would still be able to use that, you know, and that would only be temporary, right? Because then also the city could should be able to provide adequate devices for everybody because we have the money. Now it's just a matter of if it's being used for the right things, right? So I think that that's been the biggest thing that has come out mostly for my pre-K kids, but I think in general, but because in pre-K, they're just starting, you know, if we don't have the adequate resources to teach them initially, it's going to just get harder as they get older and, and the assignments are a little bit more demanding, you know, hopefully we don't go through this again because <laughs> we just don't need this. and We don't need another round of this. <laughs> just in general, like, what are you looking forward to the school year? And like, what are you, what are you looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to meeting my new students I'm looking forward to hearing how my previous students are doing with like their kindergarten teacher and just, you know, kind of like little by little trying to create like something consistent for families. So I'm looking forward to the conversations of getting to know the families, the new families, getting to know the new kids. Um, I have a lot of kids that are siblings of previous students. So I'm eager to get to know their personality because a lot of people tend to assume like, oh, they're brother and sister. They might be the same. And it's like, no, like this, like the little sister is a complete opposite of the brother that I had. I'm just eager to get to know them. That's pretty much it. And hopefully getting back in the classroom once it's safe to do so, so we can try to, you know, do all the things we can't do via remote learning. And how do you and other teachers feel about going like remote remote learning for this quarter? Well, based on the conversations we've had during like our our school meetings and like during the LSC meetings, we definitely felt that remote learning was the best option just because our school in particular, I mean, I think our whole community, our zip code in Little Village got hit really hard, but our school lost a lot of we lost like four people from families to to the virus. So it was very consuming, emotionally consuming. And we definitely do not want to put families at risk like that. We had a lot of, whenever we would meet weekly, we would just talk about like what families we were able to get a hold of, who haven't we been able to get a hold of, who was sick, who was not sick, who needed, you know, food, who needed devices so as a school i'm happy to say that we all agree on the importance of just being healthy and alive you know like let's get through that part first and then after that we'll start talking about you know grades and and just things like that that really at this point in in our opinion we felt were not as important as just staying healthy and alive and um there was no there was not one teacher that wanted to go into the building in person. As as difficult as remote learning can be and teaching, we definitely knew it was the best option. We couldn't, we didn't want anyone else to get sick. We didn't want to lose any more community members. We had a couple of teachers that got sick. So it's it was pretty scary. And I think we all agreed to try to minimize that risk as much as possible. And going on to that, like, since it's your students' first time attending school, how do you think it will affect them? I think I think it's going to be an interesting uh, experience because for those that have never met my co-teacher and I, you know, they're going to get to meet us kind of not in a physical way that they're probably used to meeting people. But I think it's 
it's going to be a little bit hard, but I think it'll be all right. And whenever we do go back into physical teaching, we're probably just going to have to work on like the actual physical challenges of like separation anxiety from when their parents drop them off, you know, having to go to the bathroom at a set schedule, not like when you're at home. So I think it's really more than anything is just kind of building up that trust and that consistency and also from families and parents to kind of just continue to participate and not, not like feel that what we're doing in pre-K is not important because it still is. And more than anything, the social emotional aspect. And going on, I was like, since you're a pre-K teacher, like, do you find it more difficult to captivate a student's attention as like compared to other kids? I think... I like to believe that the gifts I have as a teacher are perfect for pre-K. <laughs> so I definitely use whatever creative means I have available to get them to engage, whether that's, you know, so, uh, story dramatization, having animated stories, creating videos, being silly, doing different things to kind of get them to engage. That's what I do in person. And so I've been doing it on remote learning as well. And I think it worked pretty well for us at the end of last year. We had a good amount of students that were able to kind of participate. Even if they weren't able to join the Google Meets, they would still kind of text us or send in messages or upload stuff. So that's that was pretty much the goal. And really just trying to make these activities as meaningful and fun as possible. Because also, like, I don't want to just give them busy work. You know, like I want to give them things that are meaningful that I would do in the classroom and, and that they can also use to build off of that. Next up is like, are there any ways you could personally improve the all remote learning system? Like if it were up to you? If it was up to me, um, I would definitely make sure everybody has updated iPads. <laughs> um, definitely access to internet. And if money wasn't an issue, be able to get like a, a set of manipulatives and art materials that I can distribute to each family that they can use at home. That So that way, when I do have these activities, that's not a reason why they can't complete it, you know? So because that's all the thing, the activities we create, um, my co-teacher co and I, we create activities that they can utilize things at home. So they don't have to go out and get a very specific like type of toy or like they don't have to go out and buy clay or anything like that you know so it's like okay use pennies use beans use the markers that you have if you have any um so i would definitely provide the device the internet it just the manipulatives for them to start using them at home that they're going to be using at school that's what i would do and what are ways parents can help during the remote learning? I think the best way parents can help during remote learning is just by letting us know if they need more help. Like if they're confused about something or if they don't know how they're going to make like the remote learning schedule work because of their work schedule. Just let us know, you know, because like there's really there's really no there shouldn't be any judgment right now, because like I said, earlier you know we're all learning as we go through this so that's kind of how we, we have to take it it's learning through trial and error and we can't do that if it's just always a teacher talking to the parent like do this do that do that and we're not getting any any communication back from the parents so we definitely have to be open to that and what do you think are like some of the difficulties parents will face like having kids at home and making them learn at home I think one of the biggest challenges is when you have children of different grade levels, 
because you might be more comfortable with one particular thing than the other. And also just who can work independently and who needs you to really be there to work with them. For example, my the activities I have, I ask of my students to do, most parents can help the kids do it, but they need to be there to help the kids like initially start to upload it and things like that. So that's where it gets challenging because if they're busy with work or they're helping other kids, that's where it gets a little tricky. But I think it gets it gets a little trickier also as you go up in grades, especially like with like math because of whole common core thing, how they just flipped how to do math like on its head and everybody has to relearn how to do it this new way. So that's, I think, a big challenge because parents are they have every reason to feel intimidated by this new way of doing things because I feel intimidated. And that's that I'm a teacher, but I don't teach that. So it's definitely scary. And like, what are better ways parents can communicate to teachers? And like, how should they approach that in case they need help or anything like that? If it's like a particular activity that they're having trouble with, I think they should just tell the teacher like, look, could you send me a video showing me how you would teach this so that I can practice at home so I can help support my child? Or if you can give me a link to like um, a tutorial video on YouTube or, or some kind of resource to help guide me so that way I have an idea of how to support my child. I think that's probably the best way because we can't expect them to know how to do something they've never been exposed to and last question um has your mission as a teacher changed during like during the pandemic no thankfully it hasn't but I like I had said in the beginning I think just because I've always been very big on social emotional support and that's like at the foundation of of what I teach in pre-k what I focus on in pre-k just because I feel that that affects children the rest of their lives so gratefully I've been able to I've been reminded of how important it is that my approach to education my philosophy my philosophy in education is really the best way for my students but I think just in general you know I unfortunately we live in a in a time where there's a lot of focus like academic rigor and like reading scores and math scores but not as much as like how is this child doing socially and emotionally how are we supporting them to feel successful, to feel safe, you know, and capable. So gratefully, I not had to change my approach to that. <laughs> At the end of last school year, I dropped off some gifts to some kids. And I, I was social distancing when I left it to the parent. And one child ran up to me and hugged me from my waist. And they like broke my heart because I was like, like, I can't reject her, you know. But I mean, like, I, I was like... It is what it is, you know, because that's just how I felt. And and just that little moment of I can't break her heart and like push her away from me because this is so genuine, right? That she's so happy to see me and I'm happy to see her. That that's why I was like, I can't do in-person teaching and not be able to do what I normally do. It was scary and heartbreaking. And, and I was just like, what are you going to do? Like, this is who I am. And it just sucks. You know, this whole situation sucks, but we're going to get through it. We're, we're going to help each other get through it. No matter what everybody on top tries to make us do that's not safe, we got each other. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I enjoyed it so much. I did find it like a very interesting perspective when it comes to how that relationship between your teacher and just the student is actually very crucial and it's sort of confidence when you're like you're first entering in school and 
you're trying to trust other like other adult figures and just just accepting that you're going to be there for like a good like 18 16 years you have to just start having that relationship with your like your teachers and like your peers in my opinion it's one of the most crucial parts because that's how you become more social that is like how a lot of these kids start developing friends and all that so I do feel bad for these for these like little children because you know it's not the most typical thing that you might experience with that. So I did enjoy this interview a lot. It's just like, it just really opened like a new perspective of that. How this year might affect a lot of these students. So now, like, last but not least, I do want to bring up um, any resources that a lot of people can go to. So um, CPS is planning to giving like laptops and like working internet that is free internet for like, they're aiming for the whole city. So if you don't have any internet access or a laptop or just any any technology that there is a hotline that you can ask for so 773-417-1060 or email family service at cpsedu and they work from monday through friday 7 30 a.m to 4 30 p.m that is 773-417-1060 and it's just giving you just an access where you can like you know get your laptop or your working internet you can also call 773-553-KIDS for cps students who need computers or what you can also do is contact a school to administer a computer. And just just discussing more on the issue of like the free internet. So Chicago Connected uh, partnered with CPS and they're kind of partnered with Comcast and RCN to like kind of provide high speed internet access with no cost to 100,000 CPS students. And the families who are eligible should have received like a certain mail or letter, text or call about this. And if like you kind of maybe threw it away or you or you never got the got a call or whatever, you can call your your child's school and the principal should be able or just the administration should be able to contact you and provide you for like the next steps to enroll in that program with no cost. Also, last but not least, I do want to give another one for um the school the school lunch program. Uh, if you have like reduced price meals or whatever when you were in school that you can apply for the PEBT SNAP benefits one. And it's also just basically just helping out with food if you're like your child is three to 17 years old or like attending high school and like obviously qualifies for the reduced lunch program. And you just apply to um, www.dhs.state.il.us. You should find like the first icon and it says it there. But um, basically you just apply for this PBT SNAP benefits one and it's just basically giving you like the sort of budget that for you to choose to purchase food because you know when you were in school you could have already just received a lunch program but obviously since we're not in school a lot of these kids don't have that meal to accompany them throughout the day so with that it will be like loaded into like your your link card and it will be like including your link card and also your benefits so there's really no eligibility it's just that um if your child already qualified for that, then you're automatically settled. But, you know, just keep in mind, do apply if you do need it. So that is basically it. I hope you enjoyed this because I do find this very important. And just it, I just acknowledging it's going to be a really hard time for all of us. Not just not depending on like whatever, you know, your age or anything. It's going to be a hard time for like parents who aren't able to afford like a babysitter or daycare because also you run the risk of, you know, getting that virus if you just leave your child there. And also, not a, a lot of parents are going to have a hard time trying to make sure that their students are still doing well in school and still actively participating. So just keep in mind, it's going to be a hard situation for all of us. 
And just like having that more positive mindset will kind of make it better. And also people following the rules, basically just wearing a mask in general, keeping your distance and just acting in a more hygienic way will hopefully introduce us to for the second quarter. A lot of the students could at least attend the hybrid program or just anything that can bring something back to normality. So yeah, just wear your mask. Don't be selfish. Come on out. So this was Cruel Public Schooling, a segment where we aim to focus on any corruption, injustice, or anything that might affect teachers, students, or teachers. And I am Alyssa. I was your host for this show. This was another episode of CPS. Cruel Public Schooling. (laughs) 